This is the word of the Lord. And they were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they uh, said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and that their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, may your Holy Spirit Enlighten our minds to understand this passage and lead us to our Savior, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are returning today to our study of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Every year in our church, uh, during the time from Christmas, Christmas is the birth of Christ, to Easter, Easter is the resurrection of Christ, during that season we always study one of the Gospels that tell of the, the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. So over the past few years, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark. We're not going to even finish Mark this year. We'll finish it uh, next year. But uh, the Gospels, the stories of, of Jesus' ministry, are largely broken up into two sections, where the first section of Jesus' ministry is his Galilean ministry. Galilee was about 80 miles north of Jerusalem. It's where Jesus uh, uh, grew up. It's a pretty separate region from where Jerusalem is. And so Jesus did teaching, and he gathered all his uh, disciples in Galilee, and he healed people up there. And then the second part of the Gospels is about Jesus journeying over those 80 miles from Galilee to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he was going for the Passover a feast. It was a week-long feast, and he ends up in that week having all kinds of debates with the religious leaders in the temple, and at the end of the week, he's crucified, and then he's raised from the dead on, on the third day. And so you notice that that journey to Jerusalem is mentioned in verse 32 here in this passage I just read, 
And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And so along this journey, Jesus is giving some of his most important teaching to his disciples because his time with them is going to be coming to an end soon and you see how it says there in the end of verse 32 and taking the 12 again he began to tell them what was going to happen to him and he says we're going to go up to Jerusalem I'm going to get spit on and mocked and and I'm going to be arrested and I'm going to be killed but on the third day I'm going to be raised from the dead and so one of the most important lessons Jesus gives to his disciples is about their leadership after he is gone. And, um, and that's what this passage is about. These apostles that are following Jesus will be laying the foundation for the institution of the church that now we're a part of 2,000 years later. I mean, what an incredibly enduring institution that's now in every nation, in every land. I mean, incredibly powerful. And their leadership will be tremendously important. And if you are a leader... If you're an authority in any way, or if you aspire to be a leader in your life, these are some of the most important words from our Lord on this topic. And so this morning I want to point out five principles of Christian leadership uh, that we learn from Jesus and uh, that I think are crucial to a Christian view of leadership. And so uh, this is what the five principles are that we're going to be talking about. So that leadership begins in the heart. Second, leadership is naively ambitious. That third, leadership trusts in the sovereignty of God. That fourth, leadership resists being domineering. And fifth, leadership serves the many. Okay, so five principles of leadership that it begins in the heart, it's naively ambitious, trusts in the sovereignty of God, resists being domineering, and serves the many. And, uh, and this is a fitting topic today as, as this morning we are ordaining two new ruling elders to our church. Uh, uh, Jesse Smith and Paul Hanaoka were ordained this morning and, and Mitch Rosenberg is going to be ordained uh, after the sermon today. And so this is a fitting topic to talk about uh, leadership and especially leadership in the church. So what does Jesus have to teach us about leadership? First principle. That leadership begins in the heart. Leadership begins in the heart. And you see there in verse 35 how it says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And so the, James and John come with this request to Jesus. And I think Jesus' answer to that is important. We don't want to skip over verse 36 where he says, And he said to them, What? do you want me to do for you? What do you want? I think this is a question Jesus wants leaders who serve him to really stop and ponder. What is it in your heart that you really want to get out of being a leader? What is your goal in this? And this is, of course, a major issue in the church. In America, there are enormous churches all over the country. And uh, because of the culture of celebrity pastors, many people who become pastors or leaders in the church, they look at celebrity pastors and they think, I want to be like them. I want to be great. That's really what I want. That's what my desire is. It seems like there's something like that in James and John in this passage. And I think it's true that many people seek Christian leadership not from a place of overflow, 
where just the love of God and the grace of Christ that has been so transformed in our life is just spilling over. And I say, I want other people to know that grace and joy. But it co- the desire comes from an emptiness or a vacuum. There's a hunger for recognition. I need recognition. And so if I get into a place of leadership, then I will get that recognition that I really want so badly. And this is why I say that leadership begins in the heart. We have to ask the question, what am I needing to get out of this role? Uh, Do I need this role to prove that I'm somebody? Or has the gospel, Jesus' love for me, that's proven that I'm somebody. Is that I was chosen by God and Jesus died for me. And now that I'm somebody in him, I want other people to become somebodies through him. Is that what I want? Or am I needing this role to prove that I'm a somebody? And Henry Nouwen has a, a, a little book called In the Name of Jesus about Christian leadership. And he says quite a lot about this topic. And I'll just read one quote to you from Nouwen. He, this is what he says. The future of Christian leadership is a, uh, uh, in, the, in the future of Christian leadership, it is of vital importance to reclaim the mystical aspect of theology so that every word spoken, every word of advice given, and every strategy developed can come from a heart that knows God intimately. The key to a leader's heart is knowing God himself intimately. And the Apostle Paul basically says the same thing about his leadership. Uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 2.2, Paul talked about his ministry in Corinth. He was, uh, you know, he planted that church. He says, I was determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Or in Philippians 3.8, actually we read this passage in the Assurance of Pardon earlier in the service. This is what Paul says about his ministry. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. The whole motivation, his whole motivation for leadership was to know Christ more intimately. And, you know, by the way, I don't think this just applies to pastors or even church leaders. I think this applies outside of the church for Christians. Uh, If you're in business or if you're even a parent or, you know, any role that you play, you need to ask the question, what am I needing to get out of this role? Am I entering into this role from emptiness to kind of to, to take in or from a place of overflow where I know Christ and the love of Christ has been poured into me? It's overflowing. Um, And which ultimately means if it's from overflow, then the leadership is about giving to others. If it's from emptiness, then it's about taking from others. It's about using other people for myself. And so don't skip over this question from our Lord, what do you really want? Now, as important as that question is, and I think it's a crucial question, it is possible, I think, to give too much weight to that question. You know, when I became a pastor and I was looking at celebrity pastors, and did I want to be like them? Absolutely. You know, Tim Keller was a famous pastor when I was a church planner, and I wanted to be Tim Keller. And, but was that mixed with, I sincerely loved Christ, I sincerely loved the Bible, I sincerely loved and believed in the church? Absolutely. Those were both true. 
And uh, you will never come to a place of perfect motivations. And it's possible to become overly introspective about why am I doing this? And that might happen to some of you where you're, you're constantly thinking about what are my motivations? What are my motivations? So you never act. You never do anything because it's a risk to become a leader. And so uh, it turns out that Jesus' disciples had mixed motives in their hearts as well, which Jesus addresses the motives, but he doesn't then demote them. He still makes them apostles. And so that leads to our second principle about Christian leadership. So first, leadership begins in the heart. Ask the question, is it, is it from overflow or from a vacuum that we're trying to fill? But the second principle is that leadership is naively ambitious. Christian leadership is naively ambitious. And you see the ambition of James and John when Jesus asked them, what do you want? And they say in verse 37, and they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, this is kind of an odd thing to say. Jesus had just said to them, hey, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to get spit on and beaten and mocked and then killed. And it's like they didn't even hear that. They were just like, that, that must be something else. I don't know what he's talking about. What they're picturing is we're going to go into Jerusalem, into the capital city. Jesus is the Messiah. We are his 12 best friends. It's gonna, he's going to have a throne. He's going to have 12 thrones next to him. And we're going to sit on his right and on his left. That's what they're picturing. When We're going to sit on your right and left when you enter into glory. And Jesus is so surprising to me because first... He does point out how naive James and John are. You see in verse 38, he says, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. He's saying you are naive. But this passage uh, is, is really personally meaningful to me um, because at a key moment in my life, I was uh, 26 years old and I was in seminary. I went to seminary in St. Louis and I had an aspiration that I wanted to start a church in Bellingham and uh, there, I had no ministry experience. I had never been a pastor before. And I had some people saying, yeah, you shouldn't go start a church if you haven't been a pastor before, if you don't have experience and you, how young you are. And so one day I went to chapel at my seminary, and the speaker that day was uh, Dan Allender, who's a Christian psychologist. Some of you know Dan Allender. He started a graduate school in Seattle, and so he knew a lot about starting things and how bumpy it was, and he made a lot of mistakes along the way. And so this passage was his text during that chapel, just at a key moment in my life. And he did a magnificent job of showing the nerve and almost the foolishness of James and John asking, can we sit at your right hand and at your left? But then he said, Jesus doesn't reject their request. He never says no. He doesn't say, no, you can't sit at my right hand and my left. What does Jesus say instead? When they make this ambitious request, what does he say instead? The second part of verse 38. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And so the cup that he's talking about, this is the cup of God's wrath that Jesus, when he went to the cross, he said, you know, Father, let this cup pass from me. He's going to, it's talking about his death on the cross. And then later in the New Testament, his baptism, when we're baptized, we're baptized into Jesus' death. So what he's basically saying is, are you able to go to the cross with me and suffer with me? Instead of saying, no, you can't sit at my right hand, Jesus says, do you know how much you will have to suffer in order to sit there? 
And this was an incredible encouragement to me at that time. I think it's a great thing to say to ambition. is you don't step on the ambition, but you say the only way to glory is through the cross. The only way to glory is through the cross. And I love what they say in response. So Jesus says, well, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And what do they say? Verse 39. And they said to him, we are able. We can do it. And that's, I think, also an amazing comment because they, have no, they don't even know what's involved in the cup. They don't even know how much suffering it will be, but they're not wrong. James will drink the cup. We know from Acts chapter 12, he will be martyred for his Lord. He will become one of the great leaders of the church and die for he will go to the cross by the power and grace of Christ in him. These disciples are naively ambitious And Jesus doesn't shame them for it. He doesn't say, how dare you have grand dreams about my kingdom? That's so arrogant. In fact, he even acknowledges, despite their naivety, that they will actually follow him. Look what he says at the end of verse 40 there. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. And I think being naive is probably important uh, because the amount of suffering that goes with serving God as a leader is far more than we could have ever foreseen. And many of you have experienced that in your life where God has called you to do something and at the end of it you'd said, I'm glad I went through this. I don't ever want to do it again. And if I had known how painful it was going to be, there, I, I would have never agreed to it. But that was the path. And so, so far we've seen that leadership, first of all, begins in the heart. It, comes, it must come from a place of overflow because we, we know the love and grace of Christ and we want others to know that. And secondly, but leadership is always naively ambitious. And Jesus does not shame such ambition, but assures us that to follow him is to suffer with him. But I think the question remains, how do you be both humble and ambitious. You could imagine someone being naively ambitious and thinking uh, you're being foolish and you're about to make a wreck with the decision you're going to make. And so what's, how do you be humble and, uh, and ambitious? Well, I think that leads to a third principle, is that leadership trusts in the sovereignty of God. So leadership begins in the heart. It's naively ambitious. But third, leadership trusts in the sovereignty of God. Now, it's interesting because Jesus seemed to be saying that, okay, James and John, if you drink the cup and uh, and receive my baptism, if you suffer with me, then uh, you can sit at my right hand and my left. You think he's saying that, but then he seems to take it back in verse 40. He says, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And that little phrase that, it, that it's been prepared is a great statement of God's sovereignty. And what basically he's bringing them back to eternity past. Before the world even began, God has prepared certain callings for certain people. And it's God's sovereign purposes that put people in places of leadership. And I think that God's sovereignty is one of the greatest sources of courage in leadership. You know, one commentator said about James and John that they are lacking in understanding but strong in loyalty and courage. 
lacking in understanding but strong in loyalty and courage. And what God's sovereignty assures us is that whatever comes in our life, it came from Him. Whatever challenges, whatever victories, whatever open doors, opportunities that were given to us, those came from Him. Whatever challenges, whatever disappointments, whatever failures, they all came by God's appointment. And that reality is humbling. It says that I'm not the master of this whole story. God is the master of this story. And so how do I know that the sovereign Lord is calling me to do something? Maybe some of you have asked that question. How do I know if God is calling to me? Well, traditionally, the Reformed tradition has said that there's basically three aspects to God calling, God's calling in our life. The first aspect is, is a desire or a burden. And that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts. And the way that I like to think of it, that experience, is you have that experience when you see, you know, there's something that needs to be done. Someone needs to do this thing, and I think I'm the one to do it. And you might not want to do that thing. You might not be excited about it, but you think it's important, and you see that your gifts are calling. And so I call that a burden. But just having a burden or a desire is not enough. You also have God's given us the community of the church, and that's how he calls us, is he puts other people in our lives, counselors who say, you know what, you're right, that thing does need to be done. Someone needs to go do that work, and I think you're the person to do it. You should go do that. And so they confirm the burden or the calling. But those two things actually aren't enough for a calling. There's a third thing that needs to happen, is there needs to be an opportunity. And some of you have had desires in your life of something that you wanted to do, and you say, I have this desire. I think it needs to be done. Other people said I'd be good at it, but the Lord hasn't opened a door. And that's because it's the sovereign Lord who orders the opening and closing of doors, and we are following him. And what makes ambitious leadership humble is to say, my whole life is about doing my duty and serving at my post. My master has put me at a post, and I'm supposed to do the work that he set before me there. And my duty has been appointed by the sovereign Lord. And, you know, I think that even non-Christians recognize the sovereignty of God in many ways. There's a a podcast that I used to listen to a lot. It's called the um, How I Built This, which is a tells the story of entrepreneurs who started many like well-known businesses and what their story was and Guy Raz who's the uh, the host at the end of every episode he always asks these founders how much of what you experienced was luck which we would say is not luck it's it's God's providence how much is things that were out of your control and all the best people that you like listening to all say a tremendous amount of of it was luck. A tremendous, tremendous amount of it were black swans, you know, things that came out of nowhere that you couldn't have engineered, you couldn't plan for, doors that opened, and they said, yeah, did I have to work my tail off? Absolutely. But so much of the success and leadership they had was God's providence that opened doors. And many of them would say God, whether they're believers or not. They would say there is something else out there that is directing things. And so when a leader has this humility that they know ultimately they are not the master, the Lord Jesus is, it makes for a fourth principle, which is a natural outflow. And this is the fourth principle, is that leadership resists being domineering. Leadership resists being domineering. And at this point, Jesus contrasts how he expects Christian leaders to act compared to worldly leaders. And you see it there in verse 41. 
where it says, And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. And so Jesus says Christian leadership should resist being domineering. And I I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that today we're ordaining two ruling elders and a deacon in our church. And uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 is one of the places where the Bible gives instructions to elders in the church and how they're supposed to conduct themselves in the church. And it seems like Peter is referencing this passage in there. I'm going to read to you. This is uh, 1 Peter 5, 1 to 3. Peter says this, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. You hear that? Not being domineering. And, and there have been numerous high-profile pastors who've been removed from their churches for violating this principle. Many of you have probably heard about them in the news. And this is a crucial part of Christian leadership is it resists being domineering. Now, I will tell you there's also a tension here because Jesus says, don't, you know, don't be domineering, but he also corrects his disciples, the apostles. In many places in the New Testament, correct churches, call them out for their sins, are, are quite direct with other Christians. Are they being domineering when they're doing that? Uh, and they say things in the New Testament that probably in our modern years we would think that sounds pretty domineering. You know, you're telling people who they can have sex with and who they can't have sex with. You know, that's pretty intrusive into their lives. And our culture is pretty soft when it comes to authority. So we have to be careful that we don't confuse proper authority with being domineering. And actually, the word that Jesus uses in this passage that's translated exercise authority, that word's only used basically in this passage in the New Testament. It's also used in Matthew in this exact same story. And R.T. France, who's an excellent commentator on the Gospel of Mark, describes this word, exercise authority. This is how he describes it. It conveys the oppressive and uncontrolled exploitation of power, flaunting of authority, rather than its benevolent exercise. Let's say that one more time. It conveys the oppressive and uncontrolled exploitation of power, flaunting of, of authority, rather than its benevolent exercise. And actually, uh, just this morning, I, I decided to do a word study on the normal word that's used for authority that has a similar root as this word, and it's uh, ex, ex, exousia, um, which is used over 100 times in the New Testament, this word for authority. And almost always that word is used either to talk about Jesus. Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and earth, supreme authority. And then the other use of authority is the authorities of the world, you know, the principalities and powers and rulers of the world that are basically evil authorities. And so there's these two huge authorities, and the word authority is only sparingly used for church leaders. And why is that? It's because all of church leaders' authority is derived from Christ's authority. They only have authority in, when they're speaking his word and serving him and doing what he has called to them. He is the one who has supreme authority. 
And so this is a great challenge for leaders. Maintaining authority while loving the people under us. And so if you're a manager or you own a business, you know what a challenge that is. That is not easy to do. And because that paradox is so challenging, leadership is always a great sacrifice. And that is our final point from this passage. So we've seen that leadership begins in the heart, is naively ambitious, trusts in God's sovereignty, and resists being domineering. But the last, the last thing I want to point out is that leadership serves many people. It's how important it is that leadership serves many people. Many people are served when people take responsibility and lead. And so in verse 43, you see what it says, But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servants, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So clearly Jesus says leaders are here to serve people. And he, notice is that they serve many people. I mean, that's a tremendous blessing of leaders. And this is the text where uh, Christians have coined the term servant leadership. Maybe some of you have heard that expression, servant leadership. And there's been some debate about what does servant leadership mean. Uh, the question is, does servant leadership mean that the way you lead is by serving, or the way you serve is by leading. You see the difference? You know, does it mean I lead by having a low view of myself and God doesn't want me to aspire to anything? Or does it mean when I take responsibility in my community for something, it is a tremendous service to the people around me? Those are two very different visions of what this is saying. Now, on the one hand, I do think people should have a mentality that nothing is below me. You know, if I come here on a Sunday morning and something needs to get vacuumed up, you know, I shouldn't be saying, well, I'm the senior pastor. I shouldn't have to use a vacuum, you know. Like, that's, no, that's not how we are. We're just like, we got to get the work done, and whoever needs to do it, we do it. We're all going to, all hands on deck. And so we're going to, so there's a sense in which we're all servants to one another. But also, we have to have a broad vision for what service looks like. If someone starts a healthy business or a nonprofit or a ministry, they are doing a tremendous service to the community. They are being servants. And I know people, you know, who serve on boards. If you serve on a board, you carry a tremendous amount of stress that goes in being responsible for some organization. And you have to worry about all the problems that happen in there. That is a service to all the people that are served by that organization. The leaders are sacrificing and laying down their lives for many. And so leadership is one of the main ways people serve the many. And I know this last verse might sound like Jesus is putting himself in the lowest place, but it's really not quite that simple. Notice what he says in verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What's so paradoxical about this statement is that title, the Son of Man. Do you know what the Son of Man is in the Bible? It comes from a prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. And if you go back to Daniel chapter 7 and you read about the Son of Man, the Son of Man is someone who's going to come riding on the clouds into God's throne room, and God is going to give him dominion over all the nations of the world. He, Jesus is taking on himself the highest title. It's not the lowest title. He's taking the highest title upon himself. 
uh, when he says that. In this verse, Jesus is simultaneously saying, I am the king of all nations to whom all people owe allegiance, and my leadership is not for me, it is for you. We need to understand that if we are in Christ, we are reigning with him. As Revelation says, we are kings and priests to God. We are the leaders of the culture. And because we are in Christ, we are not leaders for ourselves. We are leaders for him and for the good of our neighbors and for the life of the world. So may Jesus, the great leader, make many leaders who from full hearts and with naive ambition trust in his sovereignty and without being domineering, serve the many in our community for years to come. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the profound wisdom from our Lord in these verses. And we come before you and pray that you would make our church a factory where you make many leaders, you form and train and send many leaders, not just for our church, but into families, into businesses, into government, into nonprofits, into, into schools, that we would uh, uh, be leaders in this culture and in this community. And so, Lord, we pray that you would make us leaders like our Savior. We've been so drawn to him, and it is our desire to follow and serve him and to do the duty given to us by our sovereign Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.